Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the multi-award-winning team, oh yes, more on that later, from the environmental policy magazine, The Ends Report. So this one, it's our final episode of the year, and to mark that, we're going to do things a little bit differently. So this time we've pulled in all our journalists to talk about some of the biggest stories from 2022, and those are going to include the ongoing attack on green laws, the staffing crisis at the environmental regulators, DEFRA's unlawful net zero strategy, and then instead of a quiz, Jamie will, with tongue firmly embedded in cheek, launch the Eco Chamber's annual awards, the big green gongs. And these are definitely not ones for coveting if what I've heard on the grapevine is, is right. And then after that, we will go into our Knowing Me, Knowing EU section, where Simon and Alice will be looking at the biggest green story to come out of Europe this year. They're going to be talking about the EU's climate and energy reforms and how they have been influenced by the invasion of Ukraine. And then finally, it's a little bit emotional for me because this is the last time I'm going to be hosting the Eco Chamber because I'm on to passages new. But Jamie has very generously allowed me to, to devote the last section of the podcast to tell you a little bit about that. So without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Rachel Savage, and I'm here today with Jamie Carpenter, Tess Colley, Pippa Neal, and Shosha Aidy to talk about the big green news of the year. For our first story, Pippa's going to tell us about where we are with what has been described by many as an attack on nature. Yes, it's that retained EU law bill again, and I'm sure Eco Chamber devotees will be very familiar with it by now. But for the rest of you, it's the bill that contains a sunset clause that will see all remaining EU-derived laws expire by the end of 2023, unless the government decides to keep it. And of course, this includes hundreds of environmental laws, such as nature protections and access to information. So Pippa, what's the latest on this? So yeah, recently it's been quite interesting because there's been a bit more noise from Therese Coffey about what the retained EU law bill is actually going to look like. So speaking before the Lords Environment and Climate Change Committee at the end of November, she said the intention was a retain by default approach. So she kind of said she defended the legislation and said that the the focus will be kind of on keeping what's what we already have. Um but it will become domestic law and will not have a different status. However, um, when Tess has been reporting on this, she's noted a couple of times that it is in fact already the case that retained EU law is considered domestic law in in UK courts, as it was transposed ahead of the UK's withdrawal from the EU. What does that mean? Yeah, I think it's difficult to know at this point. Um, So yeah, I guess we'll kind of be waiting and waiting to see what happens. Um, But on what could be scrapped, Coffey said um, that DEFRA has already repealed about 140 laws. um, And she added that there's quite a lot of stuff that isn't relevant anymore, particularly the Water Framework Directive, which James Bevan recently said um, is something that he would like to see um, amended. Um, She also said that there's some areas with air quality that could be could be improved, for example, the way air quality zones are designed, um, which she described as being nonsense with the whole of East Anglia lumped in with bits of Uxbridge and the whole of the A40. So she said this is an opportunity to do things better. Um, but she said quite firmly, my default is not to drop everything. My default is to retain everything. So perhaps it's a bit less scary than we first thought. But I think there's still not really the clarity that green groups are looking for. It is interesting because I interviewed Peter Kellett, who was the Environment Agency's former head of legal services uh, last week or, or maybe the week before. 
And um, he described it as a perilous time for environmental law and said that he found a lot of the proposals relating to the, this bill as, uh, as quite shocking and that it's going to water down environmental, you know, even for the ones that are kept, it's going to turn these laws into just considerations and really make them a lot weaker. So it's really interesting to know what the actual outcome of this is going to be because it seems very unclear and a lot of people are quite worried. I mean, how have other people been responding to the bill? Well, I've actually just written a story um, with the Wildlife Trust calling for it to be withdrawn. Um, this was a view echoed by the Wildlife and Countryside Link previously, who said it was irredeemable and should be withdrawn um, and said the kind of impact, especially with everything happening at COP15, um, the environmental targets that if if we are just going to be retaining these laws, then what's the point? And if we're going to be appealing them, then it's quite quite scary and a lot of unknown as to what this will look like. I mean, some of these laws contain you know binding goals and deadlines and things like that. Uh, the end of last week, government um, published those long delayed environmental targets, which I'm not sure really served to reassure many people. Can you can you give us a quick rundown of what they are? Yeah. So on waste, the target was to reduce. A residual waste reduction target of 50% per capita by 2042 from 2019 levels. So this target uh, remained largely the same as when it was outlined in the consultation. Um, but one thing that was kind of missing from the final document was there was no target to address resource use and the associated environmental impacts of consumption. Um, so that was kind of something that was arguably missing and a lot of green groups have already expressed some kind of discontent over. Um, and then the other category is air quality, um, with the target being to reduce particulate matter to 10 micrograms per cubic metre across England by 2040. Um, this is quite an interesting one because the consultation document um, itself noted that, you know, a lot of respondents called for that to be brought down to 2030. Um, um, with specific reference to a study by Imperial Co College London, which showed that this would be achievable. Um, however, the document said that we are required to set targets that are achievable across the whole of England and which the Secretary of State is satisfied that can be met and that achieving this would have a, too big of an impact on businesses um, and yeah, on individuals and small local businesses. The alternative impacts aren't great either, are they? Okay, and on water? Um, so it was quite interesting on all of the four targets that were announced, they were all brought back one year from 2037 to 2038. Um, I'm not too sure why that is and if that is because the targets, because they were delayed starting in 2023 or 2022. Um, but yeah, that's kind of concerning either way and wasn't seen with the other areas that the date was brought back. So I'm not too, not too sure. And I think a big concern for green groups was that there wasn't was no target for overall river health, unlike that in the Water Framework Directive, which is a retained EU law. And Ruth Chambers, I think, spoke to Shosha about this and said the absence of an overall target to improve the health of our rivers is a major concern, um, seeing as the retained EU law bill could see this scrapped um, or weakened. I think, you know, the team did a fantastic job on Friday getting into all those uh, subjects in detail. So if listeners want to go to ngreport.com, there's tons on there already that goes into detail about all the targets, how they've changed or not changed and the potential impact. So I would go and have a look if I were you. Thank you, Pippa. Our next story, our next big green story of the year is about the ongoing staffing crisis at the Environment Agency and Natural England, 
We've reported lots on this one as well about how the Environment Agency's frontline enforcement resources and activities are dwindling and about how this is crushing the morale of a lot of officers who simply want to do their jobs and to be able to protect the environment, which is why they joined in the first place. But that's just one, albeit very, very significant reason of why staff are unhappy at the moment. Tess, can you fill us in on the rest of the picture, please? Yes, I can. But um, where to start, Rachel? It's it's from the start of the year we've been reporting on this and it's just been, it's felt like one thing after the other. The Environment Agency, I'll start with them because as we're recording today, they've begun um, some industrial actions just short of strike, uh, but we'll also, which will also see some officers uh, withdraw from sort of emergency response. And this is just one in many uh, kind of cases of industrial action we've seen this year. The start of the year, we saw Natural England taking prospect members at Natural England taking action for six whole months, uh, again, short of strike. Uh, and this was over paying conditions. And a lot of that is part of the reason it's causing such stress. And the kind of stress we're talking about is people going to have to go to GPs um, because of stress-related illnesses. The stress is because the regulators, and this does this goes for both the EA and it goes for Natural England, um, they're not, not retaining kind of qualified expert people because everyone's so stressed because there's not enough of them uh, because the pay structure is so so poor no one can you know you can't you can't get paid properly uh, to work at these places which do really important jobs uh so yeah we've, we've we've seen kind of crisis after crisis and and we're seeing it across regulators now and DEFRA itself I will add uh, there was a big big poll recently from um PCS union. Of all the departments, DEFRA was one of the, the ones to vote uh, in most favour of uh, taking strike action. It doesn't bode well, does it? I mean, there are lots of, uh, so people people have been, it's been reported that people have been having to go to food banks or to take a second job. Some people have left to go to work at supermarkets because the pay's been better. A lot of people have gone into the private sector. And I think the, the brain drain is a, is a real issue for them. You have now junior staff facing up to really well-paid experts at, at regulated industry. And they're supposed to be able to, you know, to be on a par with them to understand whether that plant, whatever it is, is functioning in the way it ought to be, which I think is a, is a, is a, a real problem. Um, what, you say so. Uh, some of these people, the people are going on a work to rule. That's the, the industrial action that's in place. Uh, so, and you mentioned incident response. So, I presume because incident response, that's a voluntary thing that they can go and help on a on a flood or whatever it is when that, that's happening. I presume they're no longer going to do that, and then therefore there might be issues uh, at that end of the of the uh, business. Yeah, exactly. I mean, what it means they call it discontinuous action, short of strike, and. Um, it means between 6 and 10 p.m. On certain days, it's not every day, it's it's on the 19th, 21st and 23rd of December, um, they will make themselves unavailable to, to go out and deal with these incidents such as such as flooding, but also pollution events, um, you know, things that go and pollute rivers and need really quick responses, really, because otherwise you can end up losing uh, a lot of, lot of aquatic life in, in some circumstances. Uh, so it could be it could be serious depending on what um, either the weather or polluters throw at, throw at us. And do you know what would actually what conditions would have to be for them to actually go to strike action? Because I know a lot of them did vote in favour of strike action, but it's not quite the same as voting to strike immediately. I mean, what, what's missing? What what would have to happen for them to go that extra step? Well, I think 
often the, the the action shorter strike i mean this this is sort of it's the final it's the final warning i suppose and they'd want to see movement on different unions are asking for different things but generally it's an increase in pay and if they don't see movement on that sometimes it's also they want agreements uh, to to have unions kind of represented on pay review boards and that sort of thing which is what prospect union and natural england achieved earlier this year but what they really want is is better pay and so the the industrial action of shorter strike is the is just the step before taking that further action and i guess getting the ballot to say that they would members would be in favor of it just gives gives the backing uh, um back into the union to go ahead if they need to yeah the agency's put together a crack team of 40 people to try and solve their staffing crisis because they've got just got so many vacancies and they they can't attract people i think yeah it's about 40 people and someone was telling me well that's you know a big chunk of the actual water quality monitoring team you could have just paid them more money put the better salaries out for when they're recruiting and get better people and and retain them that way but um i'm sure they have their reasons for putting together the big team, the big team anyway I know that this is a big issue for um, energy port readers and I'm uh, convinced this is going to be something that's going to roll on and on. So it's one for everybody to get stuck into in January and I'm sure there'll be more coming then. Thanks, Tess. So our third big green story of the year is about the government's net zero strategy being judged as unlawful by the High Court because it wasn't sufficiently transparent about how decarbonisation would actually be achieved in practice. Uh, Shasha, this is something you've been looking at. Can you give us a bit more detail, please? So um, on the 18th of July, as you said, there was this landmark ruling in the High Court um, where the net zero strategy, which basically set out how the government would achieve its sixth carbon budget, um, which is basically um, it covers the period from 2033 to 2037. um, And it specified that we must get 100% emission reduction by 2050, aka net zero. Um, So the judge ruled after the strategy was challenged by Friends of the Earth and Client Earth, along with the Good Law Project, he was working with the environmental campaigner, um, Joanna Wheatley. He found that um, the strategy didn't meet the government's obligations to produce detailed climate policies that would show how they'd reached this budget. And actually, the targets fell short by 5% on... um, quantified methods. So 95% of how it would reach that target was um, quantified numerically, um, and the remaining 5%, it was just qualitative targets, um, which the judge ruled was not, there was not enough information for this to be scrutinised. So he ordered that the Secretary of State lay a fresh report before Parliament uh, no later than the end of March 2023, um, which will make up for this shortfall. So that's something we've definitely got to look out for in the new year. And um, in September, Chris Skidmore um, was actually tasked under the Trust Administration to carry out sort of an economic review of the strategy, which should be published uh, by the same deadline. Um, And this strategy will be pro-business and pro-growth, which was Trust's mantra at the time. Um, (laughs) And the call for everyone uh, the call for evidence for this closed in October. So hopefully we'll we'll learn a bit more about it. But we haven't actually heard um, too much since that was announced. Okay. So we. So what was the government's immediate response when the the ruling was made? Well, actually, they didn't. I didn't think they issued um, necessarily an immediate response because we thought for a while they might appeal the decision. Um, but in October. Um, 
they made it clear they would not be appealing this decision and effectively accepted um, that the targets weren't lawful and they will publish them by March 2023 or they have to at least. And what were the, were the particular areas, particular sectors that weren't sort of covered in, in depth sort of within the strategy that people were dissatisfied with when they were going through it? I think the main issue that I saw was that, so when it was, when the strategy was set out, it was in June um, 2021, and it had to achieve the carbon budget and the net zero obligation. And it was actually praised for being quite ambitious. Um, So the problem wasn't really with the target itself. The problem was that, you know, there's a duty on the Secretary of State to ensure that the proposals and policies would meet these budgets. um, And the Secretary of State, who I think was um, Greg Hans at the time, he said that they would meet the 100% emission reductions by 2050. But actually, in the proposal itself, this wasn't quantified. Um, so there was a shortfall of about 5%. And I think I think that was the main problem that was identified. Um, so in the update, they'll have to have to show how they will achieve this. I think some of the NGOs were quite uh, annoyed about things such as uh, agriculture having quite a weak, uh, well, there's no target for cutting emissions from agriculture, even though it's responsible for a big chunk of UK emissions. I think Carbon Brief had picked that up. And others were worried about decarbonation of buildings, aviation and and those kind of things. But I guess that's not what the the judge was talking about in particular. But it'd be good to look at those, I think, uh, in more depth when the the next strategy, revised strategy comes out, if, if it does. It's another of those stories that we're going to keep coming back to. And we'll have a look at that again in the new year. Thanks very much, Shosha. Now, in a, another change to the normal Eco Chamber schedule, <laughs> instead of the usual quiz, Jamie has put together the Eco Chamber's first award ceremony, the Big Green Gongs. I'm going to hand over now to Jamie with the details. Thank you, Rachel. Um, to, just uh, to firstly say that um, before anyone writes in or asks their lawyers to write in, <laughs> this is only meant to be a bit of fun. So, um, if, if Please take it in in that way. So, uh, <laughs> so um, yeah. So, so we have, have a series of um, five categories, and they've all been very, very hotly contested. Kind of, kind of reflect the fact that we've had a very tumultuous year in in politics and at Westminster. So, um, I guess I should just kick off. I suppose the um, first category is Environment Secretary of the Year. So uh, <laughs> it's a crowded field. It's a crowded field. We've managed it to narrow it down to um, three, just three environment secretaries. <laughs> so um, have have an amazing three nominees: uh, George Eustace, Ranil Jayawardena, and Therese Coffey. And I'm going to give a highly commended and and an overall winner in the category. So um, I'll I'll start with the highly commended. So um, so this is a minister who is mad for mangroves and has reassuringly told MPs that she intends to not continue breaking the law and that her department's search for perfection is why it's been delaying a load of environmental policies. So um, so well done to Therese Coffey um, for being highly commended. <laughs> and, uh, and Therese, we'd love to have you on the podcast in 2023 um, if you're listening. But taking home the award in this category is Ranil Jayawardena, who will remember he strove to achieve a strong economy and a strong environment, all the while without engaging with green groups, um, and was in post just from 6th of September to 25th of October. Magnificent. Well done. <laughs> he, he wanted to change deference to an economic growth department, and unfortunately, we'll never know whether that was going to happen. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> Is there a, um, a kind of a trophy or anything on, on its way to him? 
Not no. I mean, we we could if if there if there's a demand for trophies, we can see what we can um see what we can do. But um, you can just take the glory, I guess. Yeah, I think it's all about the glory. Exactly. Okay. So um, this is this is where it gets more interesting. Now we've got got a um category villain of the year. Oh. So this is scary. Um. So we've got a shortlist of four. Um. And unfortunately, it could have been many many more people. <laughs> um. So the shortlist I've got: Conservative MP for West Dorset, Chris Loder. <gasps> former Prime Minister Liz Truss with the attack on nature, Conservative Tees Valley Mayor Ben Houchen, and Anglian Water, which according to our Fines Monitor database has been fined more than any other water company in 2022. So very, very hotly contested. Um, so um, highly commended in this category is Tory Tees Valley Mayor Ben Houchen, who impressed judges with his Mayor of Jaws Tribute Act. So, um, <laughs> so, um, so you'll remember one of the one of the really big environmental stories of, of this year has been the the um, mass crab and lobster die off on the Teesside coast. Um, and it, there's been there's been a lot, a lot of news about this. Has been um, kind of reasonably recent study by academics has pointed to pyridine pollution as, as a as a kind of a byproduct of the area's industrial legacy as being the most likely culprit. Um, DEFRA had previously um, done an investigation that found no single factor, but it kind of pointed to algal blooms. Ben Houchin has attacked various people, Labour politicians and eco-activists, and claimed that, that fishermen are being used as pawns while left-wing politicians and activists tried to stop the development of the nearby Freeport for ideological reasons and without evidence. So that's why he's on our on our uh, shortlist for that one. Um, I, I think you probably guess who's going to be the villain of the year, though. Chris Loder, who has really excelled himself. So um, I don't know if we should we clap or not. I think um, right. yeah. <laughs> he's behind you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So in February, he um, kind of hit headlines and caused outrage when he he seemed to imply that police should not be prioritising the investigation of the death of an endangered whitetail eagle found that was found dead on the estate and on his estate in his constituency. Um, and a bit more recently, there were two anti-sewage campaigners who have visited police because they they made the mistake of trying to attend the meeting that he'd held in his in his constituency. But he, he says that he was required to let police know about anything out of the ordinary and that's why um, that kind of came about. So well done to Chris Loder. Following on nicely from the previous award and, and um, in, in defiance of its winner, we're, we're going to bring you the Species Reintroduction of the Year category. Um, so <laughs> slightly more positive. So it's been a a big year for species reintroductions. We've got three contenders in this category and there could have been many, many more. First on the shortlist is the bison who are back in business in Kent. Um, also on the shortlist, we've got New Forest Pine Martins. And finally, we've got Paul Harbour's Osprey Chicks. Highly commended are the, uh, the Pine Martins who are now believed to be well-established and successfully breeding in a new forest. Um, but... Um, <laughs> The winners of this category this year are Kent's bison. So well done to the bison. So um, they're, so they're <laughs> very good. Well done, the bison. <laughs> well done. After well absence, done the bison. thought to run into thousands of years, they're now back in the UK as part of a rewilding project in Kent. Um, so well done to the Kent Wildlife Trust and the Wildwood Trust who are running the project. Moving moving swiftly on, we've got the uh, gaff of the year category. We've <laughs> um, got a. <laughs> Shortlist of three for this one. Neil Parrish's tractor trouble, Rishi Sunak's COP27 flip-flop, and Jacob Rees-Mogg's fracking fail. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I don't think there's going to be any surprises for the winner on this one, but the, the highly commended has gone to 
Jacob Rees-Mogg, whose um, <laughs> decision as business secretary oh to announce that the moratorium on fracking was going to be lifted was um, pretty explosive in itself. But um, it was the vote that followed on a, on a Labour motion that actually convinced many MPs that Liz Truss's time was up as Prime Minister and that she could no longer command the support of her party. So um, well done, Jacob. Um, <laughs> but there can only be one, one winner in this category. And uh, so step forward, metaphorically at least, I guess, uh, Neil Parrish. Um, <laughs> it feels a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Well, probably longer than that for Neil. And um, maybe at least at least two environment secretaries ago when um, Neil Parrish resigned as an MP and and, and as, as EFRA committee chair. Um, he mistakenly opened a pornography website when, after looking for a type, site related to tractors um, and admitted revisiting the site intentionally on a different occasion while in the Commons. So that's why we've selected him as a winner of the Gaffer Year category. Gaffer the Year category. <laughs> one more, less less uh, frivolous, I guess. So this, this one is Environmental Hero of the Year. Um, so this one, this one's looking back to the to our first power list that was published back in May, and um, we're going to make sure it returns next year. And um, the power list celebrated the 100 UK environmental professionals who made the greatest impact in the last two years. Um, and we took nominations from colleagues, clients, competitors. So, and, and it got, got, a, got an amazing response. Um, I'm not going to name a winner here, but I thought we could mention a few people who we think have made a big difference in 2022. So, so one the first person I want to mention is, is um, Ruth Chambers of the Green Alliance's Green UK unit. And it was, it was striking when, when we were looking at the nominations, how, how well regarded Ruth is by stakeholders across the board and, Many of them credited her with, with strengthening the Environment Act, which um, is kind of a key key piece of legislation that got Royal Assent this year. Um, so well done, Ruth. I thought second person to mention is um, Dame Glenis Stacey, who is um, chair of the Office for Environmental Protection, which is the new Green Watchdog. And I think I think it's fair to say that the OEP has really started to show its teeth this year, um, particularly in holding the government to account on some of its green commitments, which has been really important given the threats to environmental protections that, that we were talking about in the previous um, section of the podcast and, and the and the numerous delays to important pieces of policy. So um, I think uh, Dame Glenn Stacey is worthy addition to the, this this category. And then finally, um, the third person I'd like to mention, it's probably come no surprise to Eco Chamber listeners, is Fergal Sharkey. So the, uh, the, the, the issue of river pollution and particularly sewage pollution is now extremely high profile. Um, it's seen as, I think, one of the Kind of great environmental scandals of our time, and I think Fergal has played a, a key role in in bringing it to wider public attention. What he says isn't isn't universally popular, but certainly he has um, made made a big effective effective exactly very effective in um, giving that issue the, the the spotlight it needs. Great, well done, everybody. Well done, everybody. That's the conclusion of the uh, big green gongs of twenty twenty two. That's a great list. I like that list a lot. And um, you're going to talk about um, the end reports gongs. Jamie? The end reports gongs, yes. So, so yeah, we had some very exciting news last week, which was that the end report was awarded the, the best of the best awards in Haymarket's um, company awards. So Haymarket, which is the publisher of end report and also therefore the Eco Chamber podcast um, has multiple brands across multiple countries um, and, and runs an annual rewards scheme and the the best the best category is is the kind of um 
the big the big prize and um it's great that um Entreport's been recognized for that particularly it's um it was recognition for some of the new bits of content that we've been we've put out in the last year so so what you're, you're listening to one of the Mika chamber podcasts which um i think we were we we weren't quite sure initially how it would be received but it's um it's growing very very strongly and we're getting more and more downloads every every month which is which is great we also had the seven documentary that came out in september which um had a fantastic response um we've also um mentioned the the, the end report power list um just now which um again was a stand-up piece of content and we also published the um clean cities index in february which again was a kind of bit of a groundbreaking piece of content Moving on, Simon and Alice are with us with their biggest scream story of the year out of Europe for our Knowing Me, Knowing EU section. They're looking at the fortunes of the bloc's climate and energy reforms under the Fit for 55 package since the invasion of Ukraine. Over to you, Alice and Simon. Thanks, Rachel. So today to wrap up 2022, we're looking back at arguably the environmental package that uh, took up the bulk of the EU's policy efforts, the Fit for 55 package. Simon, could you refresh my memory? What's the point of the Fit for 55 package? What's the point of the Fit for 55 package? Alice, oh my God. Well, where to start? I mean, the Fit for 55 package, which you may not actually gather from the name, which is um, like many things EU-related, extremely clunky. Um, It's the package of climate and energy reforms that the Commission adopted to cut the EU's greenhouse gas emissions by 55% by 2030. That's the goal. And in order to do that, we've been going through a seemingly endless number of legislative proposals and revisions. Everyone's absolutely knackered. Yeah, there's about like 15 to 20 files, something like that. (laughs) It's a little less than that. I mean, so I think in the initial package, there was 12. And then they added a few more um, in subsequent packages the big news from this weekend is that the probably probably the most important of these files which is revising the emissions trading system which is the kind of eu carbon market basically at the moment for heavy industry that deal has gone through the negotiators were at it for two days over friday and saturday and they finally finished on sunday morning at about three in the morning um which is just so classically eu i can't tell you um (laughs) And uh, yeah, so that's the deal. And basically, that changes very little about the EU's overall climate target for 2030. Everyone's, you know, very unhappy in various ways about it. So what does it change? Uh, Among other things, it doesn't have any kind of protection for you as an exporter. So if you're, say, a steel company that is exporting steel to countries outside of the EU, up until this point, you've benefited from the free allocation of emissions allowances. So basically, all the CO2 that you emit in the process of making your steel is covered for you. The price of that carbon is covered for you by the EU. You don't have to pay at the moment. Um, under the new deal, basically, you have a phase out of those free allowances by 2034 um, uh, as basically a mechanism called the carbon border adjustment mechanism comes in. That's basically a carbon tax on imports of emissions intensive products for example steel and cement so that's all that's all well and good if you're just selling products within the eu effectively you'll be shielded from products imported yeah there's there's essentially some um 
competition um, protections in a sense. Yeah, exactly. But it doesn't help you if you're exporting because effectively your products become relatively more expensive because they're covering the cost of carbon. In the EU, if you're a green group, you're also unhappy at this deal because, well, free allowances will still continue until 2034 at least. So that's billions and billions and billions and billions of euros of effectively subsidies for heavy industry who will be exempt from paying for the price of the CO2 that they emit until well into the 2030s. Okay, so nobody's happy. No one's happy. I mean, I think that I think the main thing is uh, that it is semi-miraculous that a deal has been struck so quickly. I think there were times when during the process of the file going through the council, the EU council, which is the member states and the European Parliament, there were doubts about whether some of the big measures um, announced as part of the 55 package would make it through. Another example of this is the introduction of a whole new emissions trading system for road transport and buildings, so heating and cooling of buildings. Everybody hated this idea when the commission proposed it. I mean, really, it was super controversial. MEPs hated it. Member states hated it. It was kind of after the Gilets Jaunes thing in France. Everyone was worried about um, people taking to the streets and seeking to overthrow the government because of increased cost of petrol. That's all That's all gone through now. And in fact, the, the second ETS has been expanded in the final deal to include um, process emissions from light industry and also private yachts, which is nice, and, and private jets. So that's also good. A nice Christmas treat. It's in conjunction with the... Um the revision of the effort sharing regulation as well for extra sectors beyond the sectors from the ETS. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so that's another big part of the Fit 55 package. And basically what this all means is that we're getting now quite close to an agreement on all of the big Fit 55 files. So the EU is kind of on track to, I mean, they wanted to wrap it all up by the end of this year. Um, and that's obviously not going to happen now, but it's really not that far off, it seems. Um, so big files next year include the finalising a deal on the energy efficiency directive. And Yeah, Sweden was saying as well that it hopes to wrap it up during its presidency, so that would be middle of next year? Yeah, by June. Yeah. Uh, end of June 2023. I mean, so yeah, that would be, I mean, that would be something. Obviously, um, the green groups will tell you that this is nothing like enough to bring the EU on track to deliver on its Paris Agreement commitments. I mean, we can go back and forth this all day. The commission says, no, actually, this is fine. I mean, <laughs> it is what it is. The Paris Agreement was in a very different context, though, and the elephant in the room is that those negotiations on these negotiations on the, um, on the Fit for 55 package were greatly impacted by the war in Ukraine. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's been probably... One of the most interesting things about following the evolution of these files over the year is given how much of the war in Ukraine has affected Europe through gas prices, you would think that the EU might take a stronger stance against natural gas consumption. I mean, there was a long-standing shift away from coal and towards gas as part of the EU's climate plans. Yeah, so we could have seen um, a quicker transition in the sense we could have seen a, a, a push to move to renewable energy um, and a wider variety of renewable energy faster. And that's not really what we saw, is it? 
Well, yes and no. I mean, the, the, some of the big files that are still being negotiated as part of the 55 package, so that's things like the Energy Efficiency Directive, the Renewable Energy Directive, the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. The Commission has gone back and actually proposed new revisions to those directives following the war in Ukraine in order to ramp up deployment of renewable energy. So they've proposed actually a higher overall EU-wide renewable energy target for 2030 now um, and to encourage energy efficiency as well because these are like easy wins if you're anyway trying to wean yourself off Russian gas and um, uh, reduce your overall energy consumption. I think for the green groups, there's still been a lot of emphasis, the emphasis on, say, building new LNG terminals, so liquefied natural gas terminals, is a source of some concern. I think no one is denying that in the short term the EU clearly needs to be diversifying its natural gas supplies but I think there's worries about basically creating stranded assets where the EU pumps billions of euros into new gas infrastructure to connect it to sources of gas that aren't Russia (laughs) um, in the short term and thus create a kind of long-term dependency on other just other kinds of gas. I mean I do think that there's clearly been a renewed commitment on the part of the European Commission to ramp up deployment of renewables. The Repower EU package, which is a package of measures the Commission has come up with, which is designed to speed up deployment of renewables, does come into con- into conflict with environmental matters. So things like being able to build wind farms near areas that are protected by EU nature protection rules um, without having to go through the full gamut of um, environmental impact assessments, things like that, where... Green groups are broadly worried that this will undermine long-standing EU environmental protections. Okay, so we're seeing the uh, we we can hope to see uh, the Fit for Fifty Five uh, wrapped up in the new year in twenty twenty three. What do you think the next big thing is going to be, Simon? That's a that's a great question. I think we are coming towards the end of any kind of big surprises in terms of EU environmental policy before the next um, European elections, which are 2024. The Commission basically has got an awful lot on its plate already. Um, It doesn't want to basically get too bogged down in new files that it won't be able to complete before the end of the the legislative term. Probably the major file we're going to see next year is um, the revision to the REACH regulation, which we've discussed on here quite a lot. So the main piece of EU chemicals legislation that's going to be massive and there's already so much lobbying happening around uh how that will all work the commission had proposed initially or wanted to initially to publish it sometime in early 2023 and now it looks much more likely that it will come later in the year so 2023 we can uh, look forward to uh, more development on the european green deal perhaps to completion um and in the meantime, we can all go off and have a lovely end to 2022, hopefully. Back to you, Rachel. Thank you, Alison Simon. And now, as mentioned, Jamie's going to very kindly ask me a few questions about Watershed. Uh, Watershed is an investigative journalism nonprofit that I'm launching in the new year and is the reason and the only reason um, that I would leave End Report. 
um, in a nutshell, is going to focus on all things water, which might initially sound a little bit narrow, but it's a massive area taking in marine and fresh water, and it looks at pollution, water as a resource, wildlife, public health, climate change impacts, and the policy and legislation that underpins the management of all of that, both nationally and internationally. So it's it's really rather huge. Um, we're going to partner with national and international media where our investigations will run. And we'll also write news and features and other articles in all formats because Liana Hosea, who's the, who's my partner in launching Watershed, she's worked for the BBC for around 14 years and has all the production skills that a person could ask for. So, so that's it in a nutshell. And I hope you're working with the ENGE report going forward as well. Uh, as a partner, and uh, yeah, so, th- so that's it in a nutshell, Jamie. Yeah, it sounds um, it sounds really interesting, um, and we obviously we're, we're we're very sad to see you go, but um, wish you all the best. I'm sure you you you, you and Leon will make a huge success of it. I, I guess one one of the questions I had, you, you kind of mentioned this just now, but I think the um, the model is, I suppose, is kind of quite unusual. It's not not a kind of the, the uh, a journalism non-profit is not the sort of thing that we, we see very much of in, in the in the UK. So I just wondered if you could say a bit more about how how you see it see it working and where where, where it might sit in with other other publications or um, or whether it's more that you'll be placing articles or um, investigations with other with other titles or, or organisations. In the UK, there are a few other organisations doing this kind of stuff, looking at investigative journalism and having that funded and supported by uh, grant funders and philanthropists. And that would be people such as the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. Um, they, they're looking at this and source material, they do it too. And I think the reason that, that we're doing it and that they do it is because investigative journalism in the mainstream is... Um, it's still there and where it's there, where it is functioning, it's brilliant, but it's a lot, lot smaller than it used to be. And obviously, investigative journalism is really, really expensive. You can spend months and months working on something and not actually land it. So it's very difficult for media owners, I think, to, to invest in that um, when they need to, you know, be looking for, uh, for eyeballs all the time in the sort of 24-7 news cycle. But that means that, if, you know, if people aren't investing in it, it's, it's not happening and that's bad for democracy and for society and for everything else. So we, we thought that we could do, do the same job, but looking, uh, water because you know we've got a lot of specialisms in that area and we know it really well and it's kind of quite it's quite powerful to be knowledgeable about an area and to be running investigations and to your second point it's we're not trying to sort of create a new publication we're not trying to create a new audience or a new platform we'll have a website and that's uh, watershedinvestigations.com which will be live shortly but it is working in partnership so we'll run an investigation with whoever it is, the, the Guardian or the Mail or the Ends Report or Sky or, you know, an international publication. Um, and that's where it will run. And that's where, you know, that's where all the work will go. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a really interesting point around the amount of time it takes to investigations. And I, I guess the risk for publishers, and I, I know, I know we, we've, we've tried to do a bit of that sort of thing on Ends Report, but it doesn't it doesn't really work because our, our subscribers have, I guess, information needs and it doesn't necessarily work to ask freelancers to do that stuff because they need to they need to pay the bills. So so having having that kind of model where you have got funders to to support that I think is really really valuable. And and you you've got a um fairly impressive um array of people on your advisory board you said. Yes, yeah, they are they are fantastic. So um, one was in a, an Eco Chamber Award winner <laughs> you mentioned today. So Fergal Sharkey, the former Undertones frontman who needs no introduction to Eco Chamber listeners, I'm sure, uh, part to say that he's a complete force of nature and knows very much how to get things done. He's going to be on our, well, he is on our advisory board. We've also got Professor Michael De Pledge, who um, he founded the European Centre for Environmental 
uh, Environment and Human Health at the University of Exeter. He's published sort of 400 plus peer-reviewed scientific papers. He's an advisor to the UN and World Health Organization. He's genuinely one of the most accomplished people I've ever met. And if I was to kind of go through his achievements now, it would take a long time. Um, we have Ruth Davis, who's a massively respected environmental specialist. And lately, she's been advising the Cabinet Office uh, on the Climate COP and the Biodiversity COP. We've got um, Carol Day, who's a fantastic lawyer at the public interest law firm Lee Day, um, who are at the forefront of lots and lots of uh, environmental legal cases. And then we're thrilled to have Roger Harabin, who's the BBC's former energy and environment analyst, who's going to be advising us. And he's a, a, a true pioneer of uh, the world of environmental journalism. So across those people, I feel like we've got some really, really fantastic uh, you know, advisors who can give us guidance along the way. Fantastic. I guess even though it's your 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 last recording as host of the podcast, that um, we hope Rachel that you'll you'll be uh, you'll be back on the podcast to talk about the results of some of your investigations in twenty twenty three and um, and I get I just just guess to reassure Eco Chamber listeners as well that the podcast will will continue to uh, to to air fortnightly next year we'll have we'll have more big green news and we'll have more deep dives more more guests more 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 to look forward to yeah definitely and thank you very much for letting me for for everything it's been a great eight years i've had a fantastic time and i'm really going to miss everybody but i you know hopefully be working together so it's not the end of end of any kind of relationship um and thank you for letting me introduce watershed to eco chamber listeners if anybody wants to know more watershedinvestigations.com which i hope will be ready by the time this goes out which if not would be troubling but never mind it'll be it'll be ready the following week um and that really brings us to the end of this episode and the end of the year for the eco chamber thank you to jamie carpenter tess collie pippa neal shosha Aidy, simon pickstone and alice fillin if you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been talking about today please go to ngreport.com and that is it have a lovely break everybody don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and look out for the next episode in january 2023